So we'll be taking a break from Exodus uh, for an Advent series here. Um, Our first Advent text is going to be Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be focusing in verses 10 through 18. I'll give you an opportunity to turn in your Bibles if you have one. If not, the text will be on the screen. But uh, if you're like me, you you love Christmas time, and uh, you especially like Christmas movies. Uh, I, I got to confess that that last year was the first time I saw Home Alone, and I, I realized I'm late to the party on that one. Uh, but that is typical of me. But uh, for those of you who don't know, like like you remember the whole setup of Home Alone is the the family. What what's the name of the family? McAllisters. The McAllisters. Okay, that's right. The McAllister family. Like, they're hustling out the door. They're going somewhere for Christmas. And, like, they're hustling the bags and the tickets and the, the, the car service and all that. And, and they're so preoccupied with their Christmas that, what, they forget, they forget Kevin, right? They, they get so distracted by, by what they're doing with Christmas, they forget something essential. Now, I don't think this is supposed to be a parable for, for Christmas time. Maybe. You never know. Um, but you know, I, I, as, as fun as Christmas time is, and I'm not one of these pastors who likes to grinch all the fun things of, of Christmas, you know, I, I, I like eggnog and the parties and, uh, the, the cheesy Hallmark movies, uh, and you know, Mariah Carey and everything like that. It's all good. But here's the thing is, is we can get so preoccupied with our celebration of Christmas. We can forget Kevin. Okay. That was a stretch analogy. I'll be disciplined by the elders later. <laughs> and, and what I love in, in Hebrews chapter 2, just look at the first verse with me. It calls us this Christmas to not forget the main thing. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And, and we're going to see that that is talking about the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Let's hear the word of God from Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 10 now. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Please pray with me. Lord, help us to see the beauty and meaning of Christmas, that our celebrations would be an enhancement of our engagement with the central message of Christmas that you came for us. As we look at your word now, speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, um, 
I looked out my front window or door, and I looked across the street. I saw a U-Haul. There was new neighbors moving into a house that's one of those houses that frequently turns over, right? And so I did what I always do. I I went and introduced myself uh, to to the person moving in. And I offered to, of course, offered to help with the dresser. Um, And as I was talking to, it was a a small family, uh, father, mother, child. As I was talking to the dad, I was just, you know, hey, where are you moving from? And just inside Denver. I was like, oh, why? And, uh, and things took a serious turn, much more serious than I was ready for. He told me that he had a, a terminal illness. And that uh, the reason they were moving to this house is because it's so close to the hospital uh, in which he was receiving treatment. And uh, it's caught a little flat-footed, to be honest with you. I was ready for something like get to know you. This, this got serious quick. So I tried to do my best as I was fumbling and said, hey, you know, I'm your neighbor. I'm right across the street. If you need anything, I'm, I'm here to help. If you ever want to like, talk or anything like that, I, I, I'd be more than happy. And, and realizing what I was saying, I said, I said you know, I, I've never been through. And before I could even finish the sentence, he looked at me and says, you have no idea. And I went, true, I'm going to go to a hole over here that I'll dig and bury myself in. He was right. When, when someone has not had your experience, it's very difficult to help from the outside, isn't it? When someone tries to speak in, be helpful or comforting, and they have no clue what you're going through, it's not often very helpful. You know, if you're, if you're longing to be married and you're still single, it's, it's hard to hear words of comfort and encouragement from people who are happily married. If you struggle with infirmity in your body and, and chronic illness, someone who's enjoyed good health all their lives, not much help in that situation, are they? If you have faced racism, rejection in your life, if someone who hasn't tries to encourage you, tries to say, oh, I get it, you know that they don't. It doesn't really help. As well as people mean, it's not super helpful. When you are struggling with loneliness and isolation and alienation and feeling like you haven't got a friend in the world, someone that you know who is deeply connected to lots of people trying to speak into your life, if they have not been through the same thing, it's not super helpful. In fact, it's even more alienating, isn't it? It makes you feel even more alone, even more outside. This gives us a problem. When we we think about our relationship with God, we've got to ask, you know, we see God calling, speaking words of comfort all over the place, uh, commanding us, telling us how to live. But does God know what it is to be us? We live in a, in a world that is broken by sin. We are often disgusted with ourselves. We have pregret. You know what that is? Something you regret before you do it. God is holy. 
God lives in an unbroken existence. Can a God who has existed in triune intimacy from eternity past relate to someone who is isolated? What does a God who sits enthroned in glory understand about having your dignity degraded or being oppressed? These are all human experiences. And of course... What does a God who exists without the fear of death know of the, every human being's experience of not only dying, but losing people to death and fearing death? The writer of Hebrews is addressing a group of people who are going through suffering and persecution for their Christian faith. And what he tells them here is that God knows what it is to be human. Where do we see that in the text? Starting at verse 10, it says, It is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that is God, in bringing many sons to glory. I want you to notice it does not say sending. That's a big difference, isn't it? In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, this word founder, some of you guys in your translations, it might say pioneer. I actually like that translation a little bit better. It's the Greek word archagon. And archagon has a very specific meaning. In archagon, it's like whoever first founded Denver is the archagon of Denver. They found it so that others can come and live in it. Or like you rock climbers, you know what an archagon is. You know, the who, who's... A, are rock climbers in here, you crazy people? Where yet? Yeah, Rom's crazy, and Sean's pretty crazy. Yeah, there's people who do that here, just so you know. So you know how there's those eyelets that go up the rock face that you have to clip yourself to so you don't die? Well, someone had to do that without ropes first, right? They had to go up and drill those things in so that other people could come after. That is the archaegon of that rock face. It is saying... The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is the archagon of what? Of salvation. He's not establishing salvation. He's not founding it from outside. He's doing what? He's leading us from among us. And that's what we see. Uh, you know, Jesus being God with us is what's emphasized in the next few verses. Even these difficult to understand Old Testament quotations. That's what they all are. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing you praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So again and again, we see the one for whom and through whom all things exist. What? With the people. Not outside. With the people. And then it wraps it up right here in verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, some of your translations say humanity, that is correct, that's what's being got at here. He himself, what? Likewise partook of the same things. Of what? Of being human. The amazing truth of Christmas 
is that God doesn't save from the outside, but that the archaegon, the pioneer of the faith, he knows what it is to be human. He became completely human. And, and that, that's, that's the direction the, the writer goes in the next few verses. First of all, Jesus knows death. God knows death. Uh, look at the next part of this verse. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, he didn't know death by watching a clip about it or reading a book on it. He knows death better than us. He's gone through it. He experienced it. And by the way, the death that God died is, is crucifixion was considered the worst form of execution in the ancient world. And believe you me, they had some doozies. Okay? They were really good at coming up with cruel ways to kill people in the ancient world. And crucifixion was considered the worst of the worst. But he not only died, he delivers us from death and the dread of death. That, that's what uh, verses 15 and 16 say. It says, it says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That is those who are believers. That's what that's talking about there. But think about that. He sets free from the slavery of the fear of death. It, 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 that, that's really true. If we often don't realize it, but we have a death problem. Okay? Now, some of you younger people, are, it's like your first week of summer vacation. You're just not thinking about going back to school. For the rest of us, there comes a day in your life where you're like, oh, oh yeah, this ends. Right? Well, and what then? And the reality of it, reality of it sinks in. The reality that everyone you know and everyone you love, you lose to death. How are you liking this Christmas sermon so far? <laughs> but the fact that Jesus is the archaegon, right? He not only joins us, but he's gone before us out the other side of death, sets us free from the fear of death, from the slavery to fear, the fear of death. Some of you guys have heard me talk about one of my sheroes, Julia Esquivel. Uh, I have a picture of her here. There she is, all five foot nothing of her. Now, Julia Esquivel, she, she died just a, a few years ago, but uh, she's Guatemalan, she's Guatemalan, and, and, and she was actually trained, like seminary trained theologian, but also a poet, um, I've, I'm not going to read her poetry. I only get one poem per quarter here. Um, but during her youth, um, after she had graduated seminary, the Guatemalan government started carrying out, there's no other word for it, but genocide of the indigenous peoples in the mountains of Guatemala. And this was going on secretly. And when she and some other Christians found out about it, they started calling attention to it, trying to call international attention to it. She published a newspaper. She would speak and speak out wherever she could. Now, as you can imagine, a government as ruthless as that is not going to let her do that for long, is, are they? She started to get death threats constantly. There was even, she narrowly escaped being kidnapped, which, you know, kidnapped is only stage one, and stage two is you you're never seen again. 
She never stopped. She had no fear of what they could do to her. Why? She wrote a poem. I'm not going to read the poem again. She wrote a poem that says it all. The title is, They Have Threatened Us With Resurrection. She was contemptuous of what the government could do to her. The best they could do is threaten her with resurrection. She was set free from the tyranny, from the slavery of the fear of death. This is a universal human experience that God did not solve from the outside, but goes first through it. He knows our fear. He knows our grief. This Christmas, while we're celebrating, while we're having appropriate fun, let's never forget that this is what God has done for us. Let's come to the Savior who truly understands us. He not only understands death, he also knows the brokenness of sin. Verse 17 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In how many respects, guys? In every respect. That's right. If you translate the Greek literally, it means every. (laughs) So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I know that's a weird verse to understand. We're going to slow down and we're going to talk about what it means. When it says that he was made like his brothers in every respect, this is talking about with their sin. Jesus did not commit a sin. Jesus was morally perfect. Yet, the the apostle Paul tells us that when Christ was on the cross, he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes the brokenness of sin on himself on the cross. And when we see he is called a faithful high priest in the service of God, you know what a priest did? They made sacrifices for the sin of the people. That was a big part of their job. And they represented the people before God. The difference here is that the, Christ, the, the sacrifice that Jesus as high priest offered was himself. He made himself the sacrifice for sin. That's what it means by propitiation. Going to define that $5 theological term. Okay? It means that he bears the consequences for sin. Propitiation means that wrath that would fall on someone is turned away from them because it falls on someone else. Was that clear? Is that, that clear? All right, so in the Old Testament system, the, the, the punishment for sin was death, and so that's why an animal of some kind was offered and had to die. Now, we may say, hang on a second. This makes me all kinds of uncomfortable. What do you mean that not only is God wrathful, but that his wrath was pointed at humanity and falls on Jesus instead. I've heard people who don't like this position say this is kicking the dog. You know, like you get mad at someone and you kick the dog because you just lose your temper and got to kick something. Is that what's going on with 
Jesus being the propitiation for sin. Well, here's why that's not the case, all right? The wrath of God is not God losing control of his temper. Okay, he's not like us, where we just are so angry, got to punch something, got to kick something. It's not like that. Instead, the wrath of God is God's settled opposition to evil. His intentional and settled opposition to evil. It's not him losing control. It is, it, as anybody should, looking at the evil in the world, responding with anger. Now, the reason that God's wrath must fall somewhere is not because he's just so angry he's got to hit something. Instead, it's because of God's law. Consequences are part of law, correct? Like, let's say someone is convicted of double homicide and the judge says, and you go free. Is that just? No, that's an unjust judge because the consequences are part of upholding the law. Make sense? God has a law. It has been broken. Therefore, the consequences are part of it. But here's the thing. Humanity has sinned against God. Therefore, God's wrath rightly falls on humanity. But what does God do? He joins humanity so that his wrath falls upon himself in our place. It's kind of like, um, let's say, I know this is hard to imagine. Let's say I'm in a highly competitive, like, rec league basketball thing where there's people in the stands. Just go with it, people, all right? I know I'm short and slow. And I'm not very good at basketball. But my team is the Mud Dogs. And we are getting our heads kicked in. And let's say it's the final, just, just to make it a little more. All right, it's the final. We're getting our heads kicked in. We're like down 50 points. And I look in the stands. And sitting in the stands, watching us get our heads kicked in, is none other than two-time MVP. Yes, I said two. Nikola Jokic. World ch- I said two. Last year, he was the real MVP. Anyway, he's sitting there. Now, could he come into this? Could he, you know, like take care of all this and help us? Yeah, but he's not, he's not a mud dog, right? So all he could do is sit in the stands. And then, so we go to the, the locker room at halftime. <laughs> Pardon me. We go to the locker room at halftime. And I'm like, oh, mud dogs. We're dying out there. What are we going to do? <coughs> Sorry. I was sick last week. I'm not sick now. <laughs> in the locker room, like the movies, comes none other than Nikola Jokic. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm joining your team. Give me a jersey. And he puts on a mud dog jersey. And he joins the team, right, to save the day, like the movies. Well, what happens as soon as he puts that jersey on? First of all, our 50-point deficit is now his 50-point deficit, Correct. <laughs> And he can erase that deficit by becoming one of us. That's the truth of Christmas, is that God joins humanity. He takes on the consequences of our sin for us. You know... People make the mistake that because God hates sin, God hates sinners. That's not the case, right? That, that somehow like being a sinner disqualifies you from being a Christian. It's actually a prerequisite, okay? 
Some of you think that you need to stop, figure out how to stop sinning before God loves you and calls you one of his own. It's not the case. You think that, that, you know, if you ever come face to face with God, it's going to be like coming face to face with your very disappointed high school principal, which I don't know if all it happened to me a bunch. I don't know if that happened to you guys, but you know, that sort of stern, like, hmm, messed up this time. We think that God is just can't wait to condemn us. The opposite is true. That what Christmas is all about is that God's intention is not to condemn us, but to save us from condemnation. That's why he became one of us. Is, is to know the brokenness of sin and bear it. We need to come to the Savior who truly understands us. Jesus did not deal with the brokenness of sin from a distance. He entered into it and bore it himself. He knows the guilt you bear. He knows what it is to experience the brokenness of the world. He's also present with us in our our current need. When we look at verse 18, we see that he knows temptation. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, let's slow down and look at that again. For because he himself has what? Suffered when tempted. Okay, so put that another way. The temptation that Jesus faced caused him real suffering. Some people think that like the temptation Jesus faced, like he couldn't sin, right? That, that it was just kind of like, uh, uh, you know, it was already decided and Jesus really didn't have to. No, that's not the case at all. When we look at the temptation that Jesus faced, the first and most famous one is, is his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. It's in the gospel stories. And what happens is that Jesus is taken out to a desert place. And, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he, he's fasting. And then Satan comes to him and gives him three opportunities to not suffer. And he says, turn the stones to bread. You don't, need to, you don't need to fast. And he takes him up on a mountain and says, you know, worship me and I'll give you the nations of the earth. Right? Yeah, you're going to be the king of all the earth, but there's a cross to get there. You don't need that. Just worship me. And then, you know, throw yourself off the temple and... God will stop you from getting hurt. You don't need to suffer if you're as special as you're supposed to be. That temptation caused him real suffering. And we see again, the night before Jesus is arrested and crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do before he's going to the cross? Does he say, NVD, I'm Jesus, I can't sin. No, what's he doing? He's begging God to take the cross away. He's begging God, don't make me go through this ordeal. He is sweating drops of blood. So intense was the temptation. Now, it's important to know a little something about the original audience of Hebrews that they themselves, we don't know a ton about them. It's kind of like we see one side of a phone conversation, right? But what's clear is that these were people facing persecution and were tempted to bail on Jesus, right? That's their temptation. And what is the writer of Hebrews saying? Jesus understands. You're you're tempted to bail on Jesus. Jesus was tempted to bail on being Jesus. 
he knows real temptation. And because he knows it firsthand, because he experienced it, what? He is able to help those who are being tempted. For so many of us, if we're honest, we feel like the things that tempt us make us unlovable, rejectable freaks, especially to God, right? That if people knew what was your actual temptation and the, things, the temptations to which you've failed to resist, you can't imagine someone knowing you like that and still loving and accepting you. It's terrifying, in fact. But what does it say here? It says that Jesus not only experienced that temptation, that real temptation, and suffered from it, but that because he did it, he's what? He's able to help you. He's not looking at you saying, you freak, you weirdo, you loser. Look, look, at what's your tempta- look at what your temptation is. Look at the things that you've done. It's not what he's doing at all. Instead, because our God knows what it is to be fully human, including temptation, he is there to help. He is there, look at, look at the verse before, it says to be a faithful and merciful high priest. That's like his whole gig, you know? He knows firsthand what it is to be human, And he's there to help us this Christmas. I want to set the tone. Let's never forget what this is about. This season, all the fun and festivities is about turning to the Savior who truly understands. That's what we're here to do. The the truth of the gospel, it's astounding that God would become human. He would enter our world. Back in um, 1961, now I, I got a credit, I, I heard this story from Tim Keller, who died this year. But back in 1961, the, the Soviet Union launched the first successful like, manned space flight. A guy named Yuri Gagarin was the, the cosmonaut, and he, he flew two hours in orbit, made it all the way around the Earth, and, and, and went back. And when he got back, you know, the Soviet Union was uh, officially atheistic. He said, he said, I've disproven the existence of God. I went up there, I didn't see him. (laughs) And uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay in response called The Seeing Eye. You should all read it. It's really good. It's short, too. Um, And and he said, said, no. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. He said, our relationship to God is not like our relationship to any other object in the universe where you can reach it if you just go far enough. Even if it's galaxies away, right? You could eventually get to it. God's not like that. He says, instead, a relationship to God is like Hamlet's relationship to Shakespeare. He's the creator. He is not reachable from within our space. The amazing truth of the incarnation is that, so to speak, Shakespeare writes himself into his own play. That our creator enters his own creation to save us. 
to become fully human like us. This Advent season, we need to come to the Savior who understands what it is to be you. Please pray with me. Jesus, may we see the amazing truth of your life, death, and resurrection this Christmas, that it would bring praise to us, that it would bring comfort to us, that we would find in you a merciful and faithful high priest, one who bore our consequences, one who paved a way through death, and one who helps us in our current temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.